The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went out to the man, men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. 
and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all of the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. McQueen, Garner, Attenborough, Bronson. In 1963, they showed the world how it was done. Allied forces confined in a German POW camp, they planned a daring escape to tunnel underneath the fence and find their way to safety. The Great Escape, if you haven't seen it before, it is a macho film. It is a heroic, daring film. And though this escape was in the end, it was wildly unsuccessful. You can't help but walk, come away with this feeling of kind of a gritty pride. A gritty pride in that undiminished defiance of the human spirit. And Captain Virgil Hiltz, he's once again thrown into the cooler, that tiny little punishment cell. But he's got his baseball. And he's just throwing it up against the wall. And you hear him. He's not done yet. He's not beaten yet. He goes on. You know what happens in Genesis 19 is nothing like that. It's nothing like that. There's no master plan. There's no guts. There's no heroic acts of sacrifice. In fact, there is, well, there's perversion. There's shame. There's compromise. There is suffering. And there is death. On the bright side, there is justice, and yes, there is mercy. This morning, we're going to take a look at these events and consider the three major players. Three major players. We're going to take a look at the people of Sodom. We'll take a look at Lot and his family, and we'll take a look at the one who serves as judge, ed- executioner, and deliverer. And as we do, I want us to kind of ask ourselves, where do we fit into the story? And consider whether or not there are things that we need to prayerfully seek the Lord's changing hand in our lives. Last week we said that God is just. God is just. And as the judge of all the earth, earth, his judgments, they are fair, they are right. Abraham asked, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And we said the answer is Of course. You see, to those who believe in this God, the answer, well, it's obvious to them. To them, Abraham's question, it was merely a rhetorical question. Abraham isn't really wondering, is justice going to actually be done by this God I believe in? 
No, he was appealing to the fact that he knew that God is a just God, and therefore God could not bring this sweeping judgment on both the righteous and the wicked. He just wouldn't do that. Those who believe in God, they believe that God is the sovereign creator of all things. And as such, he alone has the market on what is right and what is wrong. And he alone has the right to judge the actions of those whom he has created. Just like an artist, they're the one that gets to decide whether or not the work that they're creating is good or bad. God is the ultimate judge, and so he has the ultimate authority, and he can decide how his creatures should look, how they should behave, how they should function. That's the way it was from the beginning. God was the one who judged. You remember back all the way to Genesis 1, and God begins to create things. Just by speaking, he creates things. That's this magnificent God that we've just been singing about. And he creates the dry land in Genesis uh, 1-9. And in verse 10, he saw that it was good. He creates the plants in 11 and 12. And again, he saw that it was was good. This is the judgment call that's happening right here. The lights in the sky to determine day and night. And again, he saw that it was good. And the same goes for the animals he creates. And then he creates these human beings. The first man, the first woman. And after wrapping up all of his creating, he steps back and determines it was very good. He's the one doing the creating. He's the one who knows what it is all supposed to look like, how it's all intended to work. And because of this, because of his perfect knowledge and his perfect power, it turns out exactly the way he wanted it to turn out. So he's the one that gets to make the judgment calls and say, it's very good. It's, it's perfect, actually. It's just what I ordered. And if it wasn't exactly how he wanted, or things somehow went sideways, or failed to to measure up to his standard, or step out of line with his plan, well, he is also the one to make the call. Or even to flip the kill switch and shut the whole operation down. It's his call. It's the maker's prerogative. And so to those who believe in this God, well, this creator of all things, well, it just makes perfect sense. Abraham's question, yes, absolutely yes, the creator will do the just thing here. Shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course he will. Whether that means rescuing or destroying, whether that means rewarding or whether that means punishing, he'll always do what is right and what is just. But to those who don't believe in this God, and those who have rejected his rule, his authority on their life, well, the answer is not so obvious. Not so obvious at all. Remember the events in the garden, the two people that were standing there faced with the possibility of judging right or wrong for themselves. Maybe God's judgment 
maybe God's call, the way things, he has ordered things, maybe that doesn't lead to the most satisfying existence for me after all. Perhaps, perhaps if we become like God and decide for ourselves what is best, well, then the world will just be a better place, a more fulfilling place. Yeah, this is pretty good the way it is right now, but what if it could be better? Those of you who have been with us for our our study in Genesis, or maybe you have a childhood experience, a few years of Sunday school under your belt, you know what path the first two people decided to stroll down. They chose defiance. They chose autonomy. That's a nicer word, right? They chose autonomy. They chose what they thought would be the path of ultimate freedom, having the ability to do whatever they wanted, however they wanted, whenever they wanted. But you also know that it didn't turn out so well. The description of the men of Sodom is revealing of where that path leads, or at least a point far down on that path. Let's take a look at the men of Sodom. The first thing we notice is that they were people, people who were bent on seeking personal pleasure in any way, shape, or form, and at the expense or to the detriment of anyone. Pleasure was king. We need it. We want it. We're going to have it. We must have it. We must get it any way that we can. From a Darwinian perspective, they were kind of like these, these sentient beings seeking their own survival and gratification. It's just what beings do. It's like a Lord of the Fly scenario, a survival of the fittest, a dog-eat-dog kind of existence. And we noted last week of some some evidence of that kind of mentality when we talked about this term outcry last week. Do you remember that? The term outcry? It's used in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, to describe the cries of the oppressed, the brutalized. And we noted this Sodom. It must have been a place where selfishness just abounded, where greed just dripped from everyone's lips. Where people, they they stepped over, stepped on top of, crushed others without thought or hesitation or remorse. But here in our chapter today, we see how the quest for personal pleasure, it had brought about a very disturbing and depraved community activity. Look at verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, the last man. You see how comprehensive this is. Moses is very, very specific here as he's writing this. He wants us to know that this is, this is the way it is. Everyone is involved in this. What did they do? They surrounded his house, Lot's house. They called out to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And we, we don't need to get into too much detail here, but let me just say this. The knowing that they are talking about is more than just finding out, oh, what, what, what were their names? Where did they come from? What did this, they do? It's more than that. Evidently, this was customary in this town. It was a community affair. When strangers come into town, they had this special way of greeting them. They sexually assault them. 
as evening fell, Moses makes it clear that every single man of the city, that would have included Lot's, Lot's daughters betrothed special significant others. Those guys that were going to become part of his family, they were among them. They came out to satisfy their sexual cravings. And like, like is becoming increasingly common in our culture today, it didn't matter whether or not the strangers were male or female. The men of Sodom had long since moved past simply des desiring female companionship the way that God clearly designed it at the beginning of Genesis. Instead, having traveled far down that path of determining what was best for themselves, well, they pursued sexual gratification with individuals of their own sex. And it's important to know that this movement that we see going on in the city here, it wasn't just some whimsical, pleasure-seeking kind of casual event. No, the men of Sodom meant to take what they desired. The force and, and violence... This wasn't a last resort for them. It was an integral part of the plan from the very beginning. They surrounded Lot's house. They demanded that he bring out these men so that they might have their way with them. This is a horrific scene. This is a horrific scene. It's an aberrant display of human depravity. This was on a level even that was absolutely forbidden in the larger cultural context of the land of Canaan. This is, this is the exception. This is everyone else in the land of Canaan. They point, they, oh yeah, those people over Psalm, can you believe what they did the other day? Can you believe the things that will be done to you? You steer clear. You go around this town. You give it a wide berth. Truly, these were terrible little towns. They were a people that had gone down a dark path. People who were bent on seeking personal pleasure in any way, shape, or form to the expense of others, to the detriment of others. They were also a people who would violently oppose anyone who would impose or even imply moral judgment against them. Look at verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Do not act so wickedly. And they take immediate offense at this. Immediate offense. Just like their first parents, Adam and Eve, initially desired, they and they alone are going to be the judges of their existence, of what is right and wrong for them. You may have your own standards of what's right for you, what's wrong for you, but don't impose those on me. They're not going to continue to let some foreigner live among them and play judge at the same time. We can't stand for that. No outside influence is going to cast judgment on us without paying a serious penalty. And so they say, now we will deal worse with you than with them. Doesn't that ring a familiar tone to the world we live in today? 
Remove those monuments that tell us that our laws find their roots in in this thing called the Ten Commandments. You know, we'll be the ones who are going to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves. All we need is enough votes and we'll defy any moral code no matter how ancient or sacred it is. And don't you even dare think about saying a word against us. You can speak freely, freedom of speech, you can speak freely as much as you want, as long as you agree or even celebrate who I am and what I stand for. But if not, I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to destroy you for spewing hate speech. The root of that mentality is nothing new. Oh, it's nothing new. It's one that crept into the human gene pool back at the very beginning. The struggle to be on the right side of history. Well, it started at the very start when the first man and the first woman decided to step onto their own side. That was the right side. The men of Sodom had traveled far down that path, and it would seem that we as a people are not far behind. Every day it seems like we're filled with more and more violent rage when anyone points a finger at us in judgment. We get hot and bothered real fast. How are you at receiving criticism? It's it's so easy to say, oh yeah, there's people out there. It's getting really heated. It's getting really tense. It's totally unreasonable. I can't believe how quick they are to judge me. (laughs) But how are we at receiving criticism? Are we immediately filled with this pride, this blood-boiling anger? Or do we humbly recognize that there is a just judge and creator of all things whose standards I frequently fail to meet? The people of Sodom, they were people who were bent on seeking personal pleasure. They were also people who would violently oppose anyone who would impose moral judgment against them. Number three, they were people, they were people who were enslaved. Enslaved to their own desires. Look at look at the end of verse six. After after threatening Lot, it says, they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door, but the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. One commentary points out that the Hebrew word used here, it suggests that there was this blinding light that temporarily impaired the vision of all of the men of Sodom. And you would think that this kind of of, of event happening, well, it would have stopped them dead in their tracks, kind of like Saul when he was on the road to Damascus and he sees this blinding light and he just, we're not moving any further right now. Because this was completely out of the ordinary. you think it would have stopped them dead in their tracks. But notice what verse 11 says. They wore themselves out, groping for the door. 
It's, it, 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 it's some type of zombie-like quest to satisfy their depraved animalistic lust. They're, they're grope blindly for the door until they're just completely exhausted. If, if it wasn't so sickening, it would almost be comical. It's certainly pathetic. And it's telling of the fact that their sinful cravings, they, they'd completely taken over. They weren't in control of their cravings anymore. Those cravings had mastery over them. These were not free men. The pursuit of autonomy apart from God had left them prisoners to their own desires. They would pursue satisfaction. They'd pursue it unsuccessfully until it completely destroyed them. They were slaves. Slaves to their own sin. Unless we think there's something special here, and yeah, that's really sad, something to be mourned, something to be to just, man, shake your head at and think, yeah, so sad. Lest we think that, remember what Jesus said in John 8. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so the question is for us, how has sin that we have allowed into our lives, how has that begun to, to enslave us? How has it mastered us and driven us to the point where we just we have to quench our desire for it? And what kind of misery and shame and ruin has it brought upon us in the process? The men of Sodom were people who were bent on seeking that personal pleasure. They were violently opposed to anyone casting judgment on them. They were people who were enslaved to their own desires. Also, they were people, they were people who were completely deserving of God's judgment. And yet in their own minds, they were completely justified. The Bible tells us that's typical of the human condition. Proverbs 14, 12. We read it before here in this church. There's a way that seems right to a man. It seems right. Yes, this is how it should be. It feels so good. But its end is the way to death. Like the men of Sodom, we often convince ourselves that our way is the right way. But if our way is anything other than God's way, then we're sadly mistaken. The reality is we can be right in our own eyes all we want. We could compare ourselves to others and say, yeah, I'm a lot better than those people. We could even look on our social media and see all those thousands, a thousand thumbs up at what we think, what we believe. But in the end, only one person's approval is going to matter. That's because only one has the right to truly, definitively make that last judgment call. In 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear. Every one of us. Totally inclusive statement here. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Regardless of what they thought, judgment was coming. It was already knocking at the door. They'd come to the edge of 
what God would, would, would tolerate. And now they stood on the precipice of disaster. Shall not the judge of all the world do what is just? Well, he's about to. But what about the rest of Abraham's prayer? Yeah, will God do what is just? Justice is not only about punishment. Justice is also, it has to mean salvation for the righteous here. So Abraham prayed in 1823, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And he knew the answer to that. Far be it from you, he says. There's no way you don't do this kind of thing, God. But then last week, remember, we noted that Abraham's passionate plea, well, it was really just kind of a moot point. Because all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have been corrupted. All have turned away from God. And because of that, Abraham's hypothetical 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. What if there's only 10 righteous people left? Well, it doesn't really matter, Abraham, because you see, no one is righteous. There are no righteous people. That is, there are no righteous people apart from the incredible mercy of God. Remember, God in his great mercy counts those who believe in him as righteous. We know from Genesis 15, 6, that was the case for Abraham. Could it be that that was the case for anyone else? In the little time we have left, let's talk about Lot and his family. Surely, he must be the one that Abraham had in mind as he was talking to the Lord, making that passionate plea. Yes, even, even if 10, even if there's 10 righteous, and Abraham's thinking, okay, well, I know there's at least one family there. There's at least a handful of people. He, he saw where the logic was going. But was Lot righteous? I mean, really, you want me to believe that Lot is righteous? How could a righteous man move into this despicable place called Sodom? I mean, if you believed in God and wanted to submit to his authority, then why would you willingly place yourself in a city that was totally opposed to God in the first place? And the best answer I can give is that it seemed like Lot. He believed in God, but he was driven by a pursuit of material possessions. we got to go back to chapter 13. We talked about this before. When Abraham pulled him aside and said, look at all the land. Where we're, where we're at right now, it's, just, it's too confined. There's not enough resources here for, for your whole tribe and my whole tribe. And so you look around. I'm going to be gracious to you. You look around and you decide where you want to live. Pick any place and then I'll take the leftovers. And what does Lot do? He looks right to the Jordan Valley. Oh, it's beautiful. He says it's, it's kind of like a garden. This is like, wow, you know, if we had the Garden of Eden still, it would probably look something like this. And says, that's, where, that's where I want to go because there I know my, my, my crops will be, be well watered. There will be food for, for all of my animals. My people are going to flourish here. We're going to just be, build an empire here. This is going to be incredible. And so they move into this little place called Zoar, kind of a suburb of Sodom. 
It's easy to make concessions, isn't it? It's easy to, to make compromises, no matter how big or small, as long as prosperity is on the horizon. Yeah, I know, we've we'll, we'll, we got we to do this. Yeah, we've got to go and negotiate with these people. Yeah, we've got to go hang out over here. We've got to go um, uh, mingle with this crowd. But, but look at what we might gain. We're quick to rationalize, putting ourselves in risky positions if it means that we might gain Gain financially, gain in some other way. Can you be the person, though, that truly believes in God and make foolish decisions like that? Could it be that Lot actually did believe in God and willingly moved? I, I think absolutely. Absolutely. Was Lot righteous? How could a righteous person offer up his two daughters to save these two other men? Verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. It's almost hard for me to even get those words out. That's unthinkable. It's disgusting. It's deplorable. Even if what some commentators are saying is true and that Lot's knowledge of Mesopotamian law code meant that there he was actually acting strategically here and he knew that nothing was really going to happen to him. Even so, it's horrific. In my mind, it's unforgivable. Just the thought, just the suggestion is awful. How could a man like that be considered righteous? Doesn't compute in my mind. But look at 2 Peter chapter 2. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, Peter is saying that, okay, Sodom and Gomorrah, that's, uh, that's an incident that points to a much bigger incident that is coming. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You notice three times in this passage, Peter refers to Lot as a righteous person. And that means that Lot must have shared Noah's belief in God, Abraham's belief in God. But it also means that just like Noah and just like Abraham, Lot was not a perfect man. This righteousness, it wasn't applied to his life because he had it all together. No, 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 no. He was counted righteous because of his belief in God. Lot was a sinful person, just like everyone else, just like me. And some of his sin is laid bare before us in this chapter we're looking at today. What a humiliating failure as a father we see here in this passage. And yet, God considered Lot a righteous man. Man, that wasn't because he would deserve it. No, it was because 
Lot was the recipient of God's incredible mercy because of his belief. It says it right in his passage. Lot, Lot, Lot admits it. You, you're being merciful to me. Notice also in 2 Peter that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. It also says he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Lot's belief in God and his loyalty to him meant that he was a pilgrim in an unholy land. He was a conflicted man, a man who could never be at peace as long as he was living where he was. His soul, it was continually agonized as he saw the atrocities of his neighbors. Can you relate? Maybe you find yourself looking less like the people of Sodom but more like Lot. And you find yourself living in a place where people all around you are doing things that are not honoring to the God that you serve, love, and worship, the God that you believe in. And I think that's the case for any Christian living in our day and age. But the question for us is, and we have to brace ourselves for this question, do we have the same distress that Lot was experiencing. Same distress. Are our souls tormented over the wickedness that we see in our world? Or have we come to the place where we're just ignoring it? We ignore it? Or maybe we enjoy it from a distance. Receiving some type of vicarious satisfaction. They're doing it. Yeah, that, my neighbors, man, if I told you, and then secretly... We're enjoying it. According to Peter, Lot was wrecked over the sins of his neighbors. Are you and I wrecked over the sins of people that we see around us? I fear that all too many of us call ourselves Christians today and we are completely unmoved. Completely unmoved. I think there are many of us that are just completely numb to the depravity that is going on all around us. And I think the proof is in the movies, and the television shows that we enjoy. We freely witness the same, often the same evil things that is being talked about in this passage. If not exactly, some type of version of them. Things that are, were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, those things are coming up on our television screens. Things that are those little rectangular things that we put in our pockets. My friends, if that's the case with you or with me, something's not right. And I would go so far as to even urge us, urge us, as a man named John Owen urges, take a hard look inside and ask if your faith in God is actually even real. I don't know if the faith of Lot's wife was real. Her love seemed to be for things of the world, probably her material possessions, her home, the things that were in it. Jesus tells us in Luke 17, 31 and 32, that she ignored the angel's instructions and lingered and looked back because of her great love for her stuff. 
the stuff that she owned. There's a warning here for those of us who have fallen in love with the things of our world, be they material possessions, be they, be they wayward, pleasure-seeking pursuits. There's a warning here. We need to remember the words of Jesus. Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. Remember her. Don't forget her. Don't just play it off as some type of, you know, cutesy Sunday school flannel graph presentation. The teacher passes around some salt. Okay, everyone tastes salt. This is what she turned into. No, 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 no. You remember what actually happened here. This is judgment. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And Lot's wife lost her life along with all of those living in Sodom and Gomorrah because she would not let go. At the end of the day, 50 men were killed. 23 were caught. Only three successfully escaped in that 1963 film, The Great Escape. Three escaped. At the end of the day, Chapter 19, three escaped. Lot and his two daughters. It wasn't because of any careful planning. It wasn't because of any heroic acts of valor, any clever footwork. Simply because of the great mercy of God, which he pours out freely on those who believe. Do you believe? Do you believe? Like the people of Sodom, the Bible tells us we've all gone astray. We've all wandered down that path. We've all walked it as dark as it is. And true, some are further along than others. But the sad fact of the matter is that regardless of how far down that path you have traveled, you're still headed for judgment. Prophet Malachi wrote in chapter 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Just like Sodom, the day is coming when God is going to bring justice and the only way of escape will be through the mercy of God to those who believe in Jesus Christ. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you're here today or maybe you're listening to this online, you have not placed your trust in Jesus, would you do that today? Would you do that today? Admit that you're a sinner deserving of God's judgment. Trust that Christ took your sins upon himself, paid for them by his death on the cross. And know that just as he rose from the dead on that third day, he raises you to new life, complete with a restored relationship with God and the promise of eternal life in heaven. 
Would you pray with me?